Trail and ultra runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I am your humble host, Coach Jason Coop. And this episode of the podcast brings back a format that you, the listeners, have been clamoring for over the course of the past few months. And that is one of our famous coach roundtables. So on the podcast today, we have coaches Adam Ferdinandson, who's been on the Coopcast before, as well as Addison Smith, who serves a dual role within our coaching department as one of our coaches, as well as working in our athlete services department. And each of us answer the question, what did we learn this year throughout all of our coaching experiences and also the collective coaching experiences of all of our coaching department? This is something that we like to do each and every year. We like to recap what we've learned and what we're going to, going to kind of carry into the future. And I also think that this is pertinent for athletes because you can learn through some of the mistakes we've made and the collective experiences that we have had with our athletes. All right, folks, with that as a backdrop, I am getting right out of the way. Here's our coach roundtable about what we have learned this year with coaches Adam Ferdinandson and Addison Smith. Okay, y'all ready? Do it, man. Adam, since you've got the bigger list. We're going to yeah. go over. We're going to go over what we learned. What we learned this year. This list could be actually infinite. Now that I'm thinking about it, I usually have ten points by the end of the year, even at my ripe old age. But you, you can go first. You seem like you have uh-huh. a big. <laughs> you seem like you have a big list to go through. So, what did you learn this year? And then we'll kind of get into what we're going to do differently next. But what did you learn? All right. So, yeah, I definitely had to stop making a list just for logistics' sake at a certain point. But a lot of things came up, a lot of little things. Um, and instead of just kind of blasting them all out, I wanted to see if I could find something that kind of brings them together. And one thing that I kept noticing, a theme that kept popping up, was the theme of my athletes are not me. And at first glance, that's a, a very elementary coaching 101 type subject. We all know that. We all try not to do it. Um, and, and I know it most of the time as well. But it sneaks in in ways you don't expect, um, especially with athletes that may be a lot, a lot like you and similar to your own fitness. Um, it can blind you to something. So an athlete that typically kind of runs around at the same paces that you do, um, they're going to a race and maybe instead of diving into their pacing as much as you should, you know, oh, this would probably be about a 30 hour race for me. And, and maybe you shortcut some of the, the due diligence you may have done before. So um, recognizing that athletes are more than their FTP or they're more than just what they run around at. And you need to really look at each athlete as a whole, take that into consideration and, and really dive into it like you would with anyone else because they're not you. Um, and I'll, I'll add one more to that umbrella. So one more to add to that is night running. Um, something you guys brought up in a past continuing ed that we did recently was focusing on night running. And, uh, to be honest, it was something that I, I had been doing, but maybe not to the extent that I should be with my athletes. So, um, that's just one change I'm going to be making is being a bit more deliberate about the extent to which I train that, um, since it is a big part of hundred milers and it's something that I've done so much and I feel comfortable with, but my athletes might not. And it's easy to 
to forget that they're not in the same spot that you are. Well, so it's funny that you mentioned that because I was reminded that the the first way that we came up with any sort of kind of like reasonable framework for ultra marathon training and coaching was with what was called the ultra listserv. And I, I think it's still active. I asked one of our other coaches about this the other day and he indicated that it was still active, but nobody would even recognize this format of information like dissemination in this in this day and age and all it was was just an email listserv so you would email it you know how do i prevent blisters during the leadville trail 100 and whoever subscribed to this listserv got that email and had the opportunity to reply so it was basically a giant you know carbon copy or carbon copy email email chain for all for all intents and purposes i'm probably trivializing it yeah probably trivializing it a little bit too much but but the the point that's relevant to you, Adam, is is that the the only thing that people really drew from there were, hey, I did this, I heard so and so did that, I saw somebody do this, this is what worked for me. So it was either observations based on what people's personal experiences are, and or observations based off of what they saw other people doing. So to your point, like you are not your athletes, kind of the root of a lot of early ultramarathon training was was basically that because there wasn't anything else, you know, I mean, there wasn't any sort of like scientific framework really until, you know, maybe 2010, 2009 to really kind of like draw from. And um, one of the things I took away from the coaching conference that you guys uh, uh, we're, we're both at that we're all just kind of recuperating and trying to digest from is that we're starting to figure it out. Like we don't have it figured out yet. We probably won't figure it out for another 50 years, but we're starting to figure it out. We're starting to, to, um, have common pieces of what are the limiting factors in ultra running? What drives performance in ultra running? what are the more important physiological attributes in ultra running and what are the less physiological important attributes and through that lens of figuring out kind of those three categories of things we can kind of drive principles and drive training that is not based off of hey here's what i did to make me successful we can look at it and say hey listen we know this is important we know this isn't we know that these other things are important we know these things aren't we know that these are common suffering points right? Or points of, uh, uh, points of performance deterioration. And these other points aren't. Um, so like I said, we're getting that, that error is not a uncommon one. And it's simply, I think more than anything else kind of speaks to the nativity of the sport in general. We're just kind of like early stage, you know, we're a decade or so behind a lot of the other traditional endurance sports. So that's fine. You know, so I think your, 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 your plight in terms of what what you've learned this year, that's not a plight. That's a good thing. The things in terms of what you've learned this year is actually a good one because it just recognizes that there's a better way. And I'm just ha- I'm just <laughs> kind of thankful that there is a better way as opposed to just focusing on, well, here's what I did for Leadville. You can have it. Like here's how you should train for Lead- Leadville as well. I'm just glad that we do have we are starting to have these like common points that we can all really draw from. Yeah, sometimes being so involved in the sport can actually feel like potentially your greatest weakness is that since you are a participant, you have all these subjective 
uh, N of one experiences. And it's really tempting to extrapolate those to everyone else. Yeah. I mean, even you can take it a step further and it would be maybe not as egregious of an error, but in the same vein of taking all of your athletes experience and using only that to draw from. I'm not saying that you can't draw from that in certain capacity or with a different lens or a a different shade. But certainly if all you did was, Hey, I coached these 10 people for Leadville, they, you know, eight of them finished and two of them did not So I'm just going to do the same thing for the next 10 people. I would say that's an error, right? Because you're still not applying the point, the, the kind of basic coaching point of individualization, uh, uh, towards that. So I think in our coaching vocabulary, right, as we talk about how we converse with athletes and how we converse as colleagues, like you should, your antenna should always go up and say, well, I, I personally would do this, or I had an athlete that did that. And not to say that you can't do that because you can have learning lessons and applying for the future. Absolutely. But solely relying on them or too heavily relying on them would certainly, would certainly be an error because once again, the, the point of individualization should always reign kind of, it should be one of the supreming reigning directions that you should take. Totally. Addison, you want to tack onto that at all? Yeah, I think when you're talking about using, you know, your past experience, I think a lot of that comes from taking the easy way out and not doing the due diligence. Like, you know, when you're, when you're speaking to an athlete for the first time, when you're, you know, tackling a certain problem there, I feel like there's always so many more layers that you could, you know, be exploring whether that's, you know, Oh, this fueling problem, it sounds similar to this path, past athlete that I had, you know, let's, let's put A to B, you know, each athlete has a different lifestyle, a different routine, different stressors. And I think all of those come into play and, and should be used in concert when you're making, you know, decisions in, in helping them kind of navigate, whether that's a nutrition issue or whether that's a night running issue or just tackling, you know, a certain workout. I think a lot of ultra runners, struggle with that high intensity VO2 max work because it's something that, you know, unless they've been indoctrinated in the sport through track and field and and road running, they don't necessarily know what it feels like to work that hard. And so I think even something as as small as like, how do you tackle a VO2 max or high intensity workout? It's going to take different cues for different people because they're coming at it from a totally different lens. Yeah. I, the people, the people who don't come from a collegiate track and field background, tend to just because they just don't have the experience they tend to be a little bit more confused about the architecture thing in in terms of how hard should they go right how hard should this be how hard should that be and when you're a collegiate runner and you have this four-year experience of going hard during workouts two days a week and going hard during a race usually one day a week throughout you know nine months out of the year for four years of your life if you run indoor outdoor and cross country which the majority of uh collegiate distance runners do you kind of become numb to the nuance and you just go as hard as you can for every for every single workout and the the coach you know kind of dictates the intensity by the duration and the construction and the construction of the workout and so you're you're absolutely right that people are not not everybody is coming into the sport with that exact same background and even the way that we communicate what we should be doing and how you should be doing it can take on a little bit of a different tax depending, depending upon that experience. 
Addison, that touches on uh, my second point that I was going to get to is um, educating my athletes and educating them about the workout structure is one of those where you do need to take it so individual and it's really hard for the new people and they don't know what you know. So I think that's a really good point. Yeah. With my, with my new athletes, I come into it, you know, giving them cues, whether it's, you know, using the talk test, you know, should you be able to talk to someone during a VO two max intensity interval? No, definitely not. You know, how are you feeling internally? What, you know, could you have gone a little bit longer, maybe a touch, but you know, we're trying to get you at your highest output um, in a way that doesn't feel sustainable. And then, you know, having them go out and try it and then looking back at the data and, and being able to kind of course correct from there, you know, giving them as many cues as they can the first time, but letting them know that, you know, it's okay if we screw up this workout a little bit and course correct later, because it's going to take time to, to hit the workout in a way that's going to be, you know, hitting the right intensity moving forward. You guys don't know this, but I literally just recorded a podcast this morning that would have already come out by the time that this uh, podcast came out and I did with I did this with uh, Michael Rosenblatt, who has wrote a lot of or he's performed a lot of meta analyses on intensity structure. So how can we divide intensities into different components and how do those actually you know make a difference towards any physiological parameter or or kind of end and performance. And once again, you guys didn't know this. I literally recorded this two hours before we jumped on the horn here. And one of his, uh, one of his points throughout evaluating all of that research across many, many years, across many papers and producing several meta analyses on these, he, uh, one, one of his like broad brushstrokes that he would apply to it is that if you get the intensity close it's probably doing the exact same end effect. So if we use the example, I'm going to throw our cycling brethren kind of under the bus here, where they tend to overcomplicate the intensity domains that they use. And they've got, you know, even seven or nine structures, which is not all that uncommon in a, in a cycling framework, but certainly we've seen more where it's 15, 20 or whatever. That's way too much complication than is actually physiological, pra physiologically practical because your body doesn't know systems, you know, and his point with, uh, with it all is, is as long as you get the intensity close, it's more important to get the interval duration correct, not so much the intensity. So the interval duration has a greater degree of precision if you want to think about it like that versus the uh versus the intensity itself or the precision I, g I guess is more important than uh on the interval duration that it is actually on on the intensity side of things so addison to your point that you know let's just get it close and you're going to have the same net effect is actually really well taken and also backed up by the vast majority of the scientific literature when they've actually looked at this and tried to decide is it different if we run or ride our bikes at 97% of our maximum heart rate or 92% of our VO2 max versus 96% of our maximum heart rate or 89% of our VO2 max or some kind of like trivial difference. When you whittle through all of that, the answer is no, those differences probably don't make as at nearly as much, if any difference at all. And what really matters is, is the interval duration and to a second extent, like the total time under a certain amount of, under a certain amount of load. No, that, that definitely checks out. And, you know, what I've been at least experiencing with my athletes, 
you know, they, they come into it obviously nervous because they've never experienced a lot of them, that kind of intensity before. Um, but then, you know, as we've been talking about, you know, either stacking back-to-back workouts or even the second workout of that week, they're like, oh, wow, I actually, you know, felt even better than I did the first time. It, it yeah. went really well. And, and I understand, you know, what that, what it, that intensity feels like. So it takes a little bit of time, but you don't have to get it perfect. Yeah, 100%. And right. Coop, to your point, I've always seen us as having an advantage of not having power meters because our athletes aren't tempted to split the hairs that many ways. And you have to just choose three big buckets. Essentially, those are kind of our ranges for intensity. If you were to do more, it just wouldn't be practical. And I'm just glad that our athletes need to learn to listen to their body and don't have the power meter there to, uh, to trick them. But here's the deal that proposition of like not having sophisticated tools, that's not static. And something will come along, you know, foot-based power meters came along and everybody kind of, especially in trail running world kind of went me, you know, like, you know, this isn't really kind of like practical real time. Normalized graded pace is a thing you can get it. It's kind of a convoluted thing. You can get it on your Garmin and probably other, uh, uh, watches and everybody's kind of like, man, like, you know, this isn't all, kind of all that practical. But those will gradually get better. Um, you guys have heard me say this in our coaching continuing eds. Real-time lactate monitoring via a, a wearable sensor is not that far off. That is going to be here very, very, very soon within the next three years at the very most. And um, it, it'll be that'll be a seismic shift at that point in time when, can, when, you, when you can actually do that because you've taken something that has been used for forever that we have very good, very good, very good research behind that a lot of labs around the world use in terms of how to actually control intensity and you're bringing it to the everyday person. And that's not indifferent from how, uh, how the running or sorry, how the cycling power meter actually proliferated, uh, within the commercial cycling world, where at one point the cycling power meter was exclusively limited to either a lab setting or professional athletes and those professional athletes wouldn't even use it in races because it was heavy it was clumsy it was you know it was just a whole it was awkward and even the first versions of it especially the wireless versions you always had issues with the with the file transfer and stuff like that that same like evolutionary pattern where uh an intensity gauge was reserved for a very small audience and then broadened out broadened out to a large audience in cycling that same pattern is going to is going to maybe not repeat, but it'll at least rhyme when we have uh, an analog and running. And per- personally, I think that analog is going to be uh, is going to be lactate, and of course, all the other sports will have uh, access to it access to it as well. So I think this theme we don't need to forget this theme: keeping the intensity ranges simple and practical needs to prevail even though the technology might actually kind of get a little bit ahead of itself we need to find kind of the right use cases for whatever kind of comes up whether it's a real-time lactate meter or whatever permutation of putting in a a, some sort of intensity gauge actually kind of flows through adam you've had enough of the floor here and gone through gone through a small sliver of your list uh I'll, i'll make fun of you publicly because i know you can take it adam so that the listeners know part of the inside joke here is uh renown within our coaching department 
We're having long lists of questions wherever we go, whether it's a continuing ed or a coaching conference or a camp or just phone phone call between two, <laughs> two, two between two colleagues. Um, and so uh, I'm going to cut you off here with all due with all due respect. We're going to get through a small sliver of the list and let Addison kind of like take the floor. So Addison, what what did you what did you learn this year after kind of like going through the whole thing? Because you had a lot of cool experience, I would say as a, uh, as a coach throughout the year. And I'm, I'm really curious to hear what you have to say. Totally short answer a lot. I feel like for <laughs> both me and Adam as relatively young coaches, we're just trying to grab at every opportunity we can get either in the field or picking people's brains. Um, so I think the biggest thing for me is similar kind of in the art of coaching realm and kind of trying to balance, um, I, I wouldn't say a dichotomy, but almost similar to a dichotomy of, you know, wanting to support your athlete with whatever endeavors they want to be doing while also trying to hold the line while being realistic with, you know, the goal and their expectations with what actual training they've been able to put in and also trying to challenge them, you know, to not only, you know, seek out races that might be a strength of theirs, but, you know, they're a little nervous to do so or, um, you know, challenge them on a certain aspect of their training that, you know, is lacking. I feel for myself, I'm working with a lot of middle of the pack athletes or relatively beginner athletes, which is really exciting because of course we talk about at, at that stage, every stimulus is gonna, is gonna produce some sort of benefit, but now coming into year two and almost year three with a lot of my athletes, um, you know, I've been the, I've been the cheerleader. We've, we've seen some great progress. But at the same time, you know, realizing the athletes have come to CTS coaching, not only to grow, um, you know, physiologically, you know, improve their fitness, but also as ultra runners, you know, they come in wanting a challenge. They want they want to come in and, and tackle a race and feel really proud of of what they're doing. And in that, sometimes that means being a little bit uh, pushy with certain things that I feel like is necessary as the coach, having known kind of the, the landscape of, you know, the training process, but also the landscape of on the ground, you know, completing a race, there's certain things that we need to check off the box, whether they realize it or not. And so holding the line on some of those things where, whether it's like, you need to be fueling during these four hour runs, because you're not going to be running for four hours in a, in a 50 K or a hundred K. And so those practices need to be in place. And so I'm going to support you. It's your training. We're going to go the direction you want to go on the goal setting side of things. But at the same time, we've got to make sure we get our A, Bs and Cs in place. So once you get to race day, you have the tools to complete it successfully and in a way that you can really enjoy it. You know, it's an interesting dialogue because, you know, we're largely in the commercial space, right? Somebody yeah. wants to sign up and do a race. We're, we're going to say yes, you know, almost without exception. I'm not saying there's yeah. like, that's completely limited, you know, in Addison, you see this on the athlete services side as well, kind of serving a dual, a dual role between a coach and athlete services. Um, but we always feel that we can make and make an impact irrespective of how short of a time frame we have to, to, to make, to make that impact. But it is a very, um, I'd say not a cautious line, but it takes a very careful eye to be honest with where you can make that impact and how much of an impact that actually is. Um, sometimes just reorganizing things over the course of the last four weeks actually make, can can make a material make a t make a material difference. 
sometimes the athlete's confidence in, hey, I've got somebody that's going to make sure that I don't screw it up or help me not screw it up in the last two months or whatever that short-term time frame actually makes a difference. But make no mistake, the biggest difference is over longer time frames. And to your point, Addison, of, you know, people come to you and you've got this like push pull of you want to be realistic with them and you also want to challenge them. I've always thought the challenge piece comes over long time frames, not necessarily over short ones, because over long time frames, and I just had this uh, w- w- with uh, uh, with an athlete that wants to do Coca Dona, and it's you know kind of out of his wheelhouse, you know, at this point. I I I think he can do it whenever, but I think the more years transpire that I have to coach him, to train him properly, and to build up his fitness and confidence and all those other things kind of a greater chance of success that he can kind of, kind of reap in that, uh, in that arena. So, so I guess my point with that is, is, is that, um, at least in my, you know, at least in my observation and my experience, yeah, we can push athletes, but you've got a whole lot more bandwidth when you've got longer periods of time to, uh, uh, to work with in both cases, both on the physiological side, as well as this, like, psycho emotional and challenge you know more uh psychological uh skill set side of things it just makes a tremendous difference when you've got long periods of time to work for totally and i think part of that too is you need those first few months just to establish trust and to establish you know what their schedule is and kind of just getting our feet on the ground in their training you're not going to be telling them oh we need to work on x y and z <laughs> and really giving them hard challenges at that point because you just met the person like they're going to be, at, there's, there's kind of two motivating factors there. One, you want to keep them because we're still a business and you, you want to support them, but you also want to retain that athlete. But then secondly, you have to establish a relationship so that the athlete knows that, you know, these challenges, these push pulls, you know, being honest with them comes from a point of that. You care about them. You care about their training. You care that, you know, you want them to get to the race and succeed. And, you know, coming in just with, with flames and, you know, being excited and holding that line and, and engaging them that way, I just don't think is a sustainable way to go about it at the start. So I think it, like you said, it takes years of building that relationship, establishing the trust, and then we can start to work on, you know, some things on the fringes or, or, you know, holding the line on a few of, you know, intangibles that make a big difference on race day. Addison to, uh, to echo your point there, um, especially the first part of it, um, I have written down on my list, uh, be 10% pushier. So, you know, kind of the theme of this is I'm not making any giant changes. I'm not, you know, completely changing how I coach people, but, uh, there's definitely some times where I'm a, I'm a very laid back coach. I don't see my role as, um, I'm not here to force you to do anything. Um, I'm not a drill sergeant. I'm i I'm an advisor. I'm here to educate you. And as long as I properly educate you on, what the the benefits and what the costs are to to what you're proposing, whether that's you don't want to do the long run, uh, say someone doesn't want to do any intensity ever, you know, I'm not pretentious about that. If I communicate to them what they're leaving on the table, um, and and they're okay with that, and that's how they want to train, and that's what's sustainable for them ten years later, then I'll go with that. But um, there's probably about ten percent of the time where I could probably be a bit more. Um, holding the line, as you said, of, no, we're not going to switch to a bike ride today. We're going to, you know, the race is two months away. Let's, let's make sure we do this and just nudging myself that direction. Yeah. And to piggyback off of that a little bit, I think 
you know, when we talk about, you know, holding a line or trying to challenge people, you have to remember at the end of the day that it's their training. They're paying for the service and they're kind of getting the experience. And it's not us trying to enforce, you know, what we feel like they need to do. At the end of the day, it's their goal, it's their race, and we're here to support that. But I think too, you know, if you can get that balance right or improve on that balance a little bit, like I feel like we're trying to do as younger coaches, I think at the end of the day, they have a lot better value out of that product because we're not just going to be yes men or yes women and do whatever they want to do. Yeah, it's really easy to be a yes coach instead of yes ma'am, yes, yes ma'am or no, a yes man or yes woman. That's what I was trying to say. Um, I, I, I wholeheartedly concur Addison with this concept of, uh, it's their training and honestly, like incorporating that, incorporating that kind of like overarching philosophy into everything that I do every single day, every single conversation I have with an athlete makes a material impact because it takes the ego out of it. Right. Right. Like I've always found that, um, coaches who get really protective about what they're doing, like, oh, I'm doing something proprietary. I don't want to, I don't want people to share it. I don't want other people to know it. You know, I, I, you know, I put, you know, two hours on the calendar tomorrow. And if you do an hour 45, like I'm going to take personal offense to it and I'm going to kind of like lash out in this way or whatever. All of those behaviors are symptom are symptomatic of you think it's your training and it's not. It's the athletes training. They're the ones running, putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah, sure. We're guiding it and we should take pride in our work and things like that. But at the end of the day, the athletes got to choose to wake up, put their running shoes on and go out the door and execute kind of whatever the training plan is. And I've always found that attitude of make, keeping yourself in check, keeping your own ego in check and making sure that it's the athletes training. It kind of, it, it, it doesn't, cl- it, it, it makes sure that you're not clouding your judgment whenever you're talking to an athlete and evaluating their workout, whenever they don't do something, whether they deviate it from it or whatever, sure. You can provide hard, you know, tough love course correction type of stuff. There's absolutely nothing, nothing wrong with that. That's a big role of a coach. But when you do it from a standpoint of it's the athletes training, it's not your stuff. It changes your whole, in my opinion, it's, it's changed your whole perspective. Cause I used to be one of those coaches that was like, oh man, this athlete's not doing my stuff. Like I used to use that vocabulary they're not doing my workout. Like, and I don't know how, where, at what point this actually, I can't pinpoint the exact uh, time or, or instance where this actually changed. But whenever I did change to this other frame of reference where it's not my coaching, it's not my training, it's the athlete's training. It just made a whole world, made a whole world of difference so much that I even try to change the vocabulary. Like, ah, oh, the athletes that I, you know, my athletes, right. I try to change it to the vocabulary of, the athletes that I work with, right? Not my athletes possessive, the athletes that I have the honor and the privilege of guiding and, and, and working with. I even take it to, to, to that extent. So for all the coaches out there listening, listening to this, think like, think about that for a second. Like whose training is, is it at the end of the day? And are you wrapped up in your athletes training with your own stuff? Or are you wrapped up in your athletes training with their, their stuff, meaning it's their training? Yeah, that's a great point. All right. Do you guys have anything to ping pong back on that before I go? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So I, I have two just like you guys. Actually, I have two, unlike uh, Adam, who's got 20. 
Um, one of them is more of a business thing. The other one's a coaching thing. So which, which one do you guys want to start out with? I'll give you the choice. Let's go coaching. We're going to go coaching first. Okay. Pretty, pretty simple. Um, just being there for your athletes is ridiculously important. And, um, I kind of just, I, I've kind of just learned this over the years of just going out to a lot of races and then also seeing what happens when that isn't the case. Um, and, and I had the example this year where I, I was at a UTMB and I can't be everywhere all the time. And, um, but I do know that the times that I was there just standing on the side of the trail, ready to give somebody a high five, not anything magical, like, Oh, we're going to, you know, patch up your feet or, you know, tell you you're awesome or whatever. Just being there on the side of the trail, those athletes perform better in the places where I couldn't be. I, I wish I was there. I wish I had 10 of me to kind of like be out there. Like that's how powerful this, like this, like just being there piece, uh, is of it. It is of the, it is of the whole thing. And coaches who are ever out there in a deliberate capacity for athletes during their races that have worked with athletes for a long period of time will will all will all recognize that that somehow just being physically present at the race to see the the kind of the end accumulation of all of the training and all the stuff that you went through and all the conversations and emails and text messages and file analysis and things like that that you went through to get to get to that just simply being there to see the 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 end product of that particular phase of training actually ends up being pretty pretty material for the athlete even when you don't have to do anything even when you just sit on the side of the trail and uh like Addison and I did drive around you know France Italy uh, uh France Italy and Switzerland at two in the morning just to be at random ass locations on the side of the trail that can actually be like really ridiculously uh impactful uh for the athletes um the opposite is also actually true and this is a kind of a coaching lesson for everybody out there if you neglect to just say hey good luck mm -hmm. to your athletes before a race or afterwards hey good job or tell me how it went just kind of like simple things that's probably the biggest coaching error that you can make and you know dominic who's probably right over addison's shoulder is his ears are probably burning right now because that's that is one of the top three, if not the top one, complaints that he hears. My coach didn't call me right before the race, and my coach didn't say anything after I did the race. So it's not like we're infallible here. We obviously make that mistake, otherwise Dominic wouldn't hear that feedback at all. But um, the opposite is actually also true 180 degrees the other way. Like you completely deteriorate any level of confidence and trust and you know, relationship building and things like that. When for whatever reason you neglect those touch points. So I'm not saying that every coach has to be every at every race for every single athlete. That's somewhat impractical unless you're a national team coach or you work with one of the NGBs or something like that. But at least some physical and or virtual touch point is just, just ridiculously important. And you can't underestimate the, the, the power of just saying, Hey, go get them or just being there out there at the, at the side of the trail. That actually means a lot to, to, to each and every athlete. And you can see it like being a third party witness to all the athletes that you worked with at UTMB, 
you know, it's it's uh, going from suffering and all of the different faces you can make in the pain cave to just lighting up and, and feeling like you have a real team member on the ground. Um, and so, yeah, being being able to be a part of that, um, not only for, you know, my athletes, but for everyone that I was helping out crew at UTMB and various races throughout the year, you you can not only, you know, hear it from the feedback afterwards, it was great to see you, but you can see it and it's a it's a positive shift. And no matter what sort of suffering that they're in, when they see that person that they've worked with for weeks and weeks and weeks to get to that pinnacle moment. Yeah. So good, good story about that, that I'll tell publicly and I'll anonymize as much as possible. Uh, we had several athletes, both a lot of which I coach, but also some of our other coaches worked with that weren't, that weren't over at UTMB. And one, one of them happened to, uh, have all of their stuff lost in transport uh, right before the race they came over kind of late maybe it was like wednesday or thursday or something like that showed up and immediately no baggage or anything like that our whole coaching team kind of rallied to put together a you know some sort of some sort of like frankenstein care package for for this athlete based on our gear because we had our gear there right so we put them all together put it in our chalet opened up our chalet athlete came over and then kind of like backfilled the rest of the stuff with all of the things in Chamonix for, for anybody that ever goes to one of the UTMP races that ever has this happen to them. And this will happen because there's just so many people on their airlines suck at keeping pe- track of people's bags. Don't panic because Chamonix is an outdoor person's paradise and you can find pr- pretty much everything you need within that v- very, very small Valley. Or if you happen to fly in Geneva, a combination between those two, you can almost find almost everything, almost everything that you need. So that's not the important part of the story. The more important part of the story is what happened on the backside of the race. So this athlete was having a, you know, rough day kind of behind his splits, but certainly within, you know, w- within all the cutoffs. One of the things that he, he needed to gather was all of this nutrition because he was planning on flying with it and he gathered it all, you know, in, in the Chamonix Valley and just didn't get enough of it, you know, kind, kind of quite frankly. And so his wife, who's his primary crew, um, uh, texted me kind of late into the evening, was probably 10 or 11, 10 or 11 p.m. On, on Friday, and told me two things. One, I am falling asleep because they were all jet lagged and I don't feel safe driving from Champagne Lock to Triant. And two, this athlete has run out of his nutrition. So I said, listen, I'll drive out to Triant. I was in Chamonix at the time. It was like, you know, 11 PM, he was going to be there at four in the morning or some, some kind of ungodly hour. And, um, uh, I said, just stay in Champagne lock. I'm going to tell this athlete that you're going to stay in Champagne lock. So you're going to sleep and he's, you know, he's not kind of concerned about you, you know, driving through a couple of foreign countries, all sleep deprived and jet lagged and things like that. That's a psychological thing. And I will take care of the nutrition. I'll, I'll find it. I'll solve, I'll solve the problem. Don't worry about it. I'll just solve it. And, um, I just happened to, I, during this whole thing, I just happened to be getting gelato, which is a, it will be a material part of the story in just a second. I just happened to be getting gelato at 11 PM and noticing that everything is closed. However, there's 10,000 runners in the Chamonix Valley. I don't need to rely on stores to get stuff. And then magically Billy Yang and his whole crew appeared and I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm just going to ask Billy for all of his stuff. So Billy put to shout out to Billy Yang. 
put together this care package, this kind of elaborate actually care package of stuff for this one athlete that needed like two gels going into the Triant aid station. And so I took that and I drove out to Triant a couple hours away, maybe about an hour away, like three or four in the morning or something like that to meet him in Triant. And he took two things from me, two things, two, two things, neither of which were all that material at the end of the day. It's not like rocket fuel or something that would like solve some sort of epic problem. But his feedback afterwards was, oh my God, I felt so much better after I left that aid station. And it had absolutely nothing to do with anything that I put in his water bottles, like, no, like nothing. It was very, very, very minor and trivial. And he would have been fine just getting stuff from the aid station. But be because somebody made the effort to one, give his wife some rest, which they kind of desperately needed at the time. And two, to my first point of just being there, that part of it lifted everything, lifted him physically, emotionally, psychologically. And he ended up having a pretty, uh, a pretty good uh, race after that. So my whole point with that is, is, is never underestimate just the fact of just being there. Cause I guarantee you nothing that I gave him, which was very little of this whole elaborate care package that I got from my friend, Billy, um, nothing in there was all that material. It was just actually make, making the effort to, to go out there. That was the material part of it. Coop, I think that intangible effect of just being there for someone, even if it's not at a race is probably one of the bigger use cases for coaching that sometimes people aren't even aware of. And I think it's part of why someone will still be with a coach 10 years down the line, even if um, they kind of know where the training architecture is going, they figured out a lot of the nutrition, yada, yada. They know that before the race, they're going to have someone in their corner. And that's your time to reach out and say something authentic and meaningful. There's bonus points for that. You Just being there is part of it. And then you also have that opportunity to to say something that's going to make an actual difference and then check in afterwards and, and actually care about how it went. And they can sense that. And if they know you care and they, and you give them authentic feedback beforehand of, of how ready they are, I think it can make a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I'm, I'm actually, so every year I've mentioned this, I kind of like ratchet up my, my budget and the whole uh, infrastructure that I have to be there, whether it's buying a van or, you know, all, all the things that kind of like go into that, I, I'm going to take like another step forward as well and just try to be there more virtually. You know, I don't know how I'm going to orchestrate that, but that's going to be a deliberate part of it because I, I, I kind of feel so, feel so strongly with about it along with the, a lot of the other things that, you know, I've been ratcheting up from, uh, uh, from, from year to year. So that will be, I'll, I'll, we'll probably come back a year from now and I'll say the exact same thing. I'm going to double down on it again. Okay. So that's my first thing. Just be in there. Uh, my second thing is more of a kind of, it's a little bit more of a business component. And, um, that's that the, the, the landscape of coaching is changing and I think it's changing for the better. Um, it's getting more mature, more sophisticated. There are more people involved. I never thought in a million years we'd have 85 people physically attend a coaching conference to which there's not going to be a virtual component to it. So I'm referring to the USCA conference that, that by the time this podcast will come out, will be a few weeks old. And we, it's not like we don't have all the video from it. We have all the video, all the audio, it's all, it's all captured pr professionally. And we're not going to release it as a, after, you know, an after market uh, product or anything like that, because we believe in the kind of the physical touch point so much of getting all the people in the same room and things like that. 
I never would have thought that there was a marketplace for that three or four, three or four years ago. Like no chance. Like don't, don't pass go. That's a stupid idea. You know, there's not enough people that'll, that, that'll want to come to it. And I'm not saying that conferences are like the end all be all of the, 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 the evaluation of professionalism within coaching, but it's a pretty freaking good litmus test. To be honest with you, the fact that people will take time out of their weekend, which is always everybody's hottest commodity, fly from all over North America. And we actually had some people from outside of North America, from my understanding as well, uh, attend this as well, take their time, plunk down a few hundred bucks to, uh, to come just to learn from some of the brightest minds and kind of geek out about coaching for, for, you know, <laughs> of all, of all things for a few days is actually, uh, uh, kind of amazing. And I made this remark to a number of, uh, individuals where we're at this conference, it was really interesting to see the adoption across this space, but it was also interesting to see who's not there. And I'm not saying that everybody has to go to every single conference or continuing it or whatever. But it has been, in my observation, very clear that there is a group of coaches that is interested in their professional development. And there is a group of coaches that is just not. And that's not indifferent from cycling or triathlon or any of the other any of the any of the other endurance sports. But at least seeing that separation is something that is new because before it was just all the latter group. There was a group of people that just that just wasn't with all due respect to the people that are in there. I just never saw it. You know, I just never, I never saw it. Uh, especially adopted more kind of in mass as we've been, been able to see with a lot of these uh, opportunities that exist within USGA. And there's a lot of different flavors of this. I mean, Oscar Juke and Droop has a, you know, course now that I've taken Stacy Sims has a course that a number of our coaches have taken and things like that. So just to see that, just to see that landscape change where people are treating it professionally more people are doing it full-time. Not that that's the only flavor, but more people are doing it full-time. More people are taking the leap. And instead of bifurcating their time between five or six different side hustles, they're saying, Hey, listen, I can do this as a, as a full-time deal. More people are building businesses around it, like really good businesses around it. That part of it to me is it, I don't know if I just learned it this year, or it's just something that's really exciting for me to actually see because I've seen how powerful it can be in other sports. We did this in cycling. We did this in, in triathlon and the kind of the communities like coalesced around professional coaches and professional uh, uh, coaching companies. The athletes got a lot better. And that's very clear. If you just like look at the results across triathlon and cycling and, and, and running that, that, that coaching piece was a, not the only certainly, but a big catalyst uh, of all of that. So it's really neat to see that progression finally starting to be tangible to where people look at it as a professional opportunity that they're going to invest in. And they kind of need to, if they want to serve their athletes the best, because all of the other coaches are actually doing it. And it will be a case, mark my word, that three or five years from now, the ones that have invested in their profession, just like any other ones are going to prosper more and the people that they counsel their athletes are going to prosper more than the people that don't invest in it and kind of stay in their own silos and don't do anything. That's not to say that they can't be a successful, but there definitely will be a separation there just like any other profession. 
professionals who invest in their profession end up outperforming and outpacing the professionals that don't invest in their profession across any service industry that you can uh that you can think of and that's um like i said that that that's something that that i learned has been really cool this year and it's just been highlighted really over the last six months over a couple of developments that i've seen one of which is this conference that we all just attended i was completely shocked by the participation we saw and just overjoyed at how many i uh, coaches were there wanting to be better and investing that much and in being better. I, I wanted to see that coming at all either. And the more, the better. I mean, yeah, speaking to yeah, the continuing yeah. education opportunities that we have within CTS and kind of learning from different coaches who have strengths and backgrounds in different areas and kind of getting able to benefit from their additional knowledge that we don't necessarily, you know, have or aren't as strong in. Um, I think similar can be said for the group of professional coaches that are coming to these conferences and really trying to up their game. I think it's going to up everyone's game. And, you know, as a, as a coach that wants to provide, you know, the best for their athletes, however way that comes from other coaches and learning from other coaches coming to these conferences, you know, the better I'll take it all. Yeah. I mean, once again, none of us are doing anything proprietary. We might like to think that, you know, we're doing something special or somebody has got a secret sauce or whatever, but at the end of the day, I mean, both on the technical training side as well as the the kind of the business side of things, mo- most people, not everybody, most people have a remarkably like similar structure behind that. And the more that everybody can learn about what's working, what's not working, and what be- best practices are, what 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 practices kind of like fall short, I think is better for everybody. Because once again, Addison, you see this kind of on the athlete services side. We do see athletes that come into CTS because of a bad experience, right? They know that they need guidance and things like that. And we've been like victims of that on the other side. We've provided poor experience that people go out and they, and and they shop the, and they shop the marketplace just to be transparent and not to act like we like know all the answers or anything like that. But I've always said that for every, every, every one of those people that, that says, Hey, I had a bad experience over here. I'm going to reinvest. I'm going to shop the marketplace and I'm going to go somewhere else. For every one of those people, there's eight or 10 that just are out of the marketplace. They just say, listen, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm gone. And that's not good for the marketplace as a whole. And I'm going to switch from the business side in just a second for people that are tired of this. That's not good for the marketplace as a whole, because that customer base will eventually deteriorate when that, when, when that happens, because you've got to have you know, 10 good experiences for one poor one, just to make it net, not just to grow it, right. Just to make it net out. You've got to have that. But the, the real, the real reason it's, is that it's tragic is that it affects the athlete who's spending their money and hard earned time right at the end of the day. And that's the most tragic piece of it. That when somebody has a bad experience is, is, you know, they've, they've have trusted somebody with a large proportion of their time. 10 hours, 12 hours, 15 hours a week. That's a lot of time. And when you're trusting somebody to do the right thing with that time or to help guide you within, uh, within that time and they let you down for whatever reason, that's a really tragic unveiling of their, of, uh, of, the, of their actual time. And so the fact that more professionals are coming in and we're going to get that proportion better, meaning the proportion of athletes that succeed and do better and have good experiences versus bad experiences, that's good for the whole group of athletes for, for, for everything. Whenever you can improve that, whenever you can improve that proposition. I, I like you, uh, Adam was kind of overjoyed was the word that you used. I liked it. 
I was overjoyed at the, I knew the numbers going into it. So I'd kind of gotten over it, <laughs> but, um, uh, but the enthusiasm I, I think was uh, the thing that, uh, that I was the most excited about just people genuinely curious and just psyched to psyched to be there was really cool. Okay. We're going to leave it at that. That was fun. Um, thank you guys for being guinea pigs on this. I think you guys both brought, uh, great things to the table. Any parting shots that either, that either of you want to opine on before we go? Just that I'm, I'm always here to keep making mistakes and getting better <laughs> and doing the best I can. You do a pretty good job of avoiding most. I'll be honest with you. I made a well, lot more, you. I made a lot more, I like made a lot more mistakes five years ago than you're making right now. So, you know, take well, that for what you it's haven't worth. even seen the list yet. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but I appreciate <laughs> it. Trust me. I can imagine. <laughs> no, this is, this has been fun. Hopefully, you know, coaches can learn a little bit from our banter and, uh, yeah, start to start to tread the waters of the art of coaching a little bit more with kind of what we talked about. So very well put young Addison. Uh, I appreciate you guys' time. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast today. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to coaches, Adam and Addison. There's a lot of alliteration going on in this podcast. Coaches Adam and Addison for coming on the podcast today and enlightening us with the experiences that they have had this year. I always appreciate our coaches' collective perspective on these things because I learn a lot about what they have learned throughout the course of a year. If you are considering coaching, go ahead. You can hit me up via direct message or you can go direct to our coaching website, which is trainright.com. There will be a link to that in the show notes. We would love to see how we can help you get you closer to your goals. I know the fall is the time of year where a lot of athletes tend to recalibrate what they're doing. We see this across the spectrum of elite athletes and everyday athletes alike. They look at their season and look at what they can improve. And if coaching is one of those areas where you think you can improve, give us a shout. We'd love to see how we can help you in that endeavor. All right, folks, that is it for today. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.